Thanks be to God for the gift of music. Please pray with me. Eternal God, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the words spoken and promises made and broken in our generation, we come to hear your eternal word that endures. Open our hearts and minds through these words of scripture that we might learn to trust and to trust in you alone. Guide us to respond to your gifts of grace with faithful and obedient lives. We offer this prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Earlier this year, Hebrew scholar Robert Alter finally finished, and I say finally, he's in his 80s, he published his lifelong work of translating the Hebrew Bible. It received wide acclaim in not only the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, popular publications you wouldn't think would care about a new translation of the Hebrew Bible, but they in fact said that this was fresh and it has continued to be held up as a scholarly, wonderful new work in religious circles and in the academia. Alter claims that despite many competent translations, most exhibit a very shaky sense of the Hebrew meaning. And he sought to, I quote, do justice to the literary beauty of the Hebrew Bible. Time and again in this new translation, he reproduces the look and the sound and the feel of the Hebrew text, its cadences, its rhythms, its wordplay, its imagery, and all of the interconnectedness in scripture. You see, our sacred texts are written to be heard. When words are repeated and repeated and repeated, we remember them. When phrases sound jagged, they command our attention to stop and notice. This week and next, I will rely upon Alter's translations and notes as we hear these miraculous stories of bread from heaven. In today's story, I, I call your attention to notice the constant use of the word and. It's as if the storyteller is throwing us forward into the narrative and there's so much more to know and hear, and, and, and. So a bit of context of what we're going to hear in this wonderful story from Exodus. The Israelites we encounter today had fled slavery in Egypt. All they could recall were stories of God appearing of their ancestor Abraham's tent, of wrestling with Jacob in the desert, and engaging in very intimate ways with people throughout the book of Genesis, or what we now have in the book of Genesis. But now, for them, it seems that God cannot be grasped. God is merely a mystery shrouded in smoke and fire and is distant and completely unknowable. Even God's name is this obtuse I am, which we still don't seem to understand. Moses was God's messenger, and he is known to have been, even then and still today, a very poor communicator. So come with me into this ancient story and join the Israelites as they are in the wilderness. Listen for God's word as I read selections from Exodus 16. And they journeyed onward on the 15th day of the second month of their going out from Egypt. And the congregation of Israelites murmured against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, where there we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to bring death by famine to all of this assembly. And the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm about to rain down bread from heaven for you from the heavens. And the people shall go out and gather each day's share on that day. And it will happen on the sixth day that they will prepare what they bring in. And it will be double of what they gather on the other days. 
And Moses and Aaron with the Lord said to the Israelites on behalf of the Lord, at evening you shall know that I was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the mornings you shall see the Lord's glory and the Lord hears your murmurings. And it happened as Aaron was speaking to all the community of the Israelites that they turned toward the wilderness and look, the Lord's glory appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses saying, I have heard the murmurings of the Israelites. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it happened in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp and the layer of dew lifted and look, and on the surface of the wilderness, stuff that was fine, and it was flaky. It was fine as frost on the ground. And the Israelites saw, and they said to each other, Manu, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Here ends our reading. Now, although the Israelites had raced out of Egypt with very little notice, at 45 days into their freedom, they really shouldn't have been starving at that time because scripture tells us, and they related the stories, that they took with them vast provisions and all of their herds. They knew that they weren't going back home for a long time, if ever, and so they took everything that they needed. Their past had been an unlivable certainty of misery and slavery, but now it was uncertainty that plagued them. 45 days of wandering without routines or plans for how they would grow or harvest food provoked their anxiety into an all-out fear. A perceived food crisis mounted into an, un an unendurable faith crisis. Searching for an object to hurl their murmured anger against, Moses was their perfect target, and we heard the accusations against him. We had flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, but because of you, we're now going to die a famine. Now God gets agitated that the people would so soon forget all of the miraculous ways God had carried them out of Egypt. In Exodus, we have the stories of the plagues, and we should not forget the frogs and the lice and the flies and the river of blood running and the firstborn dying and the thunder and the hail. And then there was the parting of the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go through and Pharaoh's chariots died. Pretty spectacular miracles that seem to be long forgotten. And God hears their murmurings and God promises now something very ordinary. Daily bread in the morning and meat in the evening, just like the pattern of creation morning and evening. On the sixth day, the provisions God provides would be double so that they could gather enough on the Sabbath to rest on the Sabbath, just like the pattern of creation, morning and evening and day after day, morning and evening for six days work, and on the seventh, you get to rest. God sought their trust in the same reliable pattern of creation. When the Manu fell, Manu, literally meaning, what is it, appears, the Israelites are dumbfounded. Hence, that's why they call it Manu, what is it? They had never seen anything like it, but found that it was sweet and satisfying, and there was a sufficient quantity for everybody to be fed. 
What is it was a strange substance, but entomologists offer solid explanations for how this rich in carbohydrate nutrition could appear and become the central ingredient in the bread that they would make. It was, in fact, magical, kind of like Don Farnsworth's experience of sourdough starters that linger in the back of the fridge as this goo, but yet is then transformed into the most delicious bread. Delicious bread. Of the Israelites, each person was to gather enough for one's day consumption, nothing more and nothing less. At first, the Israelites' anxiety prevailed, though, inciting greed. Ignoring God's promise that each day there would be what was needed, some decided that they had to hoard extra rations because we just can't trust what tomorrow might bring. And the next day, those who lived in that ethos of, I gotta look out for myself, found that their stash was rotting with worms. You see, there's no place in God's realm for greed. Every day, God provided ordinary bread. During the first week that what-is-it substance appeared on the first five days, and as promised, a double portion on the sixth day would remain fresh so they could rest on the Sabbath. And the next week, the what-if, what-is-it appeared in the same way. So imagine amongst this congregation of Israelites, there's a, a young Israelite couple that had fled with an infant. After two weeks of this rhythm of morning and evening, they might have confidence that the manu would be there the next morning. So their immediate fear of famine might begin to fade. For this same couple, 40 days later, two and a half months, or the manu is appearing unfailingly, and perhaps this couple now had a routine and they could sleep a little easier at night knowing that in the morning there'd be something there. Anxiety got pushed down. They could sleep. Forty weeks later, they had been able to settle as a community, perhaps not into a particular place, but knowing that they are a beloved community by God, and God has continually prepared what God promised. By the time this Israelite's couple, by the time this Israelite couple's kids have grown into being teenagers, it's the kids' responsibility to go out in the morning and get that manu, just like my dad had to go gather the eggs every morning on the family farm. It's the way of life. It's the way the family is. They're no longer questioning that God's going to provide. As their lives are formed around God's consistent care and presence, Trust is literally ingrained in their being. They know. Recall Sue Smart's story offered about her grandmother's faithful gift. Each week she baked. Possibly her grandmother had been inspired by her mother's baking or by her mother's baking, and each generation teaching the next. And then the small loaf that she received, that each grandchild received, reminded them of how much they are loved. For the Israelites, after 40 years and several generations, the patient, ever-present God continued to provide for the entire nation this thing that they called, what is it? The ethereal, unnamed God who had only appeared in clouds of smoke was as intimate to them as the food in their bellies, 
As sure as the sun rose, each day they received the gift of grace to start again in the form of ordinary bread, a very unmerited gift of grace. Now, I doubt that there are many people here sitting who go to bed wondering what they will feed their family in the morning. Is there anything in the freezer or the pantry? If any of these are empty, or if exactly what you would like is missing, we also all know that Whole Foods delivers in less than two hours and Starbucks is only around the corner. There is no want for food in our lives. So we don't have food scarcity or very likely physical hunger given the abundance in which we live, but the times in which we live might feel like a threatening wilderness with daily verbal assaults and the ongoing corruption of systems that we thought were established to measure out fairness. As the frequency of racist statements escalates, the divide seems to widen between those who seek to overcome racism and those who seek to normalize it as a way of life. And all around what should be a paradise of abundance is made to appear scarce and hostile, and so we retreat. And over time, we're being habituated to such consistent and toxic rhetoric. These repeated confrontations are causing us either to respond in kind or not, or to retreat into self-constructed safety zones. Trust in governments and institutions is now at an all-time low, and particularly among young generations, and it's eroding the trust we all have in one another. No wonder we feel anxious at times. Now, last night I had to edit these words that I'd written earlier in the week to specify these are the verbal assaults that we feel. We hear words of hate so casually slung around in all forms of media. And these words and thoughts of hatred festered, though, yesterday into a deadly assault for the 20 people merely going about buying their daily bread at Walmart. It was the way a racist decided to fulfill his hate-filled expressions. And then I got a text from my husband early this morning saying, hey, you need to know there was a shooting this morning in Dayton, Ohio. It's happening again. Now, at times like these, well-intentioned people will offer thoughts and prayers about gun violence. And we've prayed, and we will continue to pray, with the knowledge that consistent prayer will one day take us off of our knees and into action. But let's think about our thoughts. When the Israelites began to wander in the wilderness, they had decided that God was too distant and uninvolved in daily survival. And in the wilderness of our uncertainty, I wonder if we have forgotten how intimate and how sovereign God is. So I ask you, how often do you think about God? What do you think about when you think about God? Is God distant, uninvolved? Is God intimate as your very breath? Knowing God is not an intellectual exercise or an occasional action. Feelings and beliefs, they begin in the gut. They always have and they always will. So tomorrow, another question. What's the first thing that you think you will taste in the morning? You wake up. What's the first thing you're going to taste? Is it coffee or cereal or juice? 
The 8 o'clock folks had comments of what they knew they would taste first thing in the morning. So commit now that tomorrow morning, when you put something into your mouth and taste it, stop and notice the whatever it is, and commit to also noticing that the sun is shining. You've been given another absolutely beautiful day. And so when you taste whatever it is, think of God. God provided that. And then on Tuesday, August 6th, the very next day, do the same thing. In the same way, as your taste buds waken, notice whatever it is, and then look at the sunlight. See, you had nothing to do with that gift of a new day. It is given to you only by God. And again on Wednesday and Thursday and all of the way until Sunday. And if I don't see you next Sunday, repeat the same exercise the next week. Think of God again and again with the first thing you taste in the morning and as you notice the sunrise and go about your day in that beautiful gift of a new day. Let your body remind you that you are not alone, but part of a great network of people who work in harmony to get the bagel toasted or the smoothie blended. And also habituate yourself to experiencing a gift that you did not earn, but you receive gladly from God's hand. With the consistent and visceral experience of God's care, you will be resilient. You will trust that you are a beloved child of God, and that trust will help you learn to trust again one another. And then over the weeks and over the months of thinking about God every morning as you wake, your thinking might expand to trust the wide network of people and communities on whom you rely and in that trust, you might appreciate how much God loves them as well. Over time, as you're thinking day by day by day about God and other people, you may want to mend torn relationships and build bridges. You see, God doesn't want us to be stuck in this wilderness of violence and deception and greed. God doesn't want us to be here. What we want might be some spectacular miracle of someone or something wiping away all of this distrust and particularly all the violence because miraculously we want a secure future. But more likely, our secure future is going to come about from the daily miracle of each of us turning our thoughts towards God and reminding ourselves we live in God's world and we are given what we need by God to share with others. With practice, our thoughts will be humbler, and day by day, we will be moved to speak up for the lost and the least. And day by day, we might find policies that can change one by one. And one day, we will be, the, we will be able to embody the miracles as thoughts become actions, and we are the ones to protect and defend. The word became flesh to dwell amongst us. May the word dwell richly in you. Please pray with me. O oh God, from your providing hand, even the dissatisfied and grumbling receive what they need for their lives. God, teach us to trust in you and practice your generosity 
so that we may live a life worthy of the gospel, that we might live a life following the example of your Son, who is our Savior. Amen.